um, Wednesday evening, we had a, uh, our Dharma meditation here. And uh, the topic that came up um, was about a particular sentence. And a sentence that all of you are intimately familiar with, uh, that you've heard many, many, many times. And it was brought up that they loved where this sentence came from, but they had no idea what it meant. And it's probably the most incredible sentence that was ever written. And it offers an insight and an understanding that can completely change the way you deal with and see life and open up your heart in a way that is incredibly profound and meaningful. So I want you all to just, we're going to just take a look at this today and uh, see if, uh, if you have an understanding of it. And if not, perhaps we can, I can share my understanding of it with you. So if you open up your chant book, and the sentence is the first sentence on, I guess, page three, or the first sentence of the Heart Sutra. And it reads, Avalokiteshvara, Bodhisattva, when practicing deep prajnaparamita, saw that all five skandhas are empty and became free of all suffering and distress. So let's just, it's one sentence, so let's just take it word by word and see where we go with it. So Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, anyone know what that is? Okay, good. So this is the great place to start. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva is a being that is uh, like an emoji, if you could think of. It's the Bodhisattva of compassion. So this is like an emoji of compassion or a being that is the symbol or the icon of compassion. A Bodhisattva is one that is an awakened being that devotes themselves to awakening all other beings. That's their, their purpose that they take on, uh, and which is also the kind of the foundation of the Mahayana path or the Buddhism that we have here. Uh, so that we practice not only for ourselves, but we practice um, for the sake of others. So what we have here is a being. And basically, if you're not familiar with the sutra, what's happening is there's two people having a conversation, Avalokiteshvara and Shariputra, who's one of the disciples of Buddha. And basically what's going on, Shariputra says to Avalokiteshvara, listen, you're this great being, you're an awakened being, how do I do what you're doing? How do I get to where you are? How do I awaken? How do I become enlightened? And this is basically the Heart Sutra is the answer to that. But it's all contained in that one sentence, that first sentence of it. Not only is that answer contained, but just about all of Buddha's teaching is contained in that sentence. And certainly, the core teaching, the thing that drives all of Buddhism is contained in that. So Avalokiteshvara, it says, is practicing deep prajnaparamita. So that's an interesting phrase there, right? He's practicing it. He's not 
reading it. He's not telling about it. He's not uh, thinking it. He is doing. He is doing deep Prajna Paramita. So then the next question is, what does Prajna Paramita mean? If he's doing it, what is it? And if we don't know the Bodhisattva, we're probably not too familiar with Prajna Paramita. Well, the translation means perfection of wisdom. But what it means is Prajna is a particular type of wisdom. It's an ultimate wisdom. And it's different from knowledge. And knowledge is a thing. It's something that you know. Prajna is the just knowing of it. It's just the experience and knowing. So it's a intuitive knowing that goes beyond words and concepts. Because all words and concepts are linguistic and they're dualistic. It just says what something is compared to what something isn't. So a prajna knowing is a intuitive knowing of things exactly as they are, without judgment, without comparison, uh, without separating things. It's just seeing the wholeness of reality, but intuitively. So that's what he's doing. And he's doing this, and in the doing of this, he sees something. And this is the key to it. This is the trick. This is the, 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 the illusion that he uncovers and he sees through. And what does it say that he sees? He says he sees that all five skandhas are empty. Well, what does that mean? Well, skandhas, the, when he's talking about the five skandhas, he's talking about one thing. He's talking about the self. He's talking about who we think we are. Now, the five skandhas, if you want to cheat, if you just go down to the next paragraph, it tells you what they are. Uh, their form, which is the body, sensations, perceptions, thoughts, and knowing or consciousness. And that's what the Buddha describes as what a person is. That's what makes up a person. That's what makes up you. So he says that this person, this self, is empty. Empty of what? What does he mean that the self is empty? Well, he basically means that if something is empty, whatever was inside or you thought was inside doesn't exist. It's not there. It's an empty jar. So the self is empty of any kind of existence. In other words, he's saying this self that we all cherish so much that we think is such a, is the most important thing in our life that we spend our lives cultivating, protecting, uh, doesn't exist. And he says when you realize that, and this is the incredible promise that he makes, that you become free from all suffering and distress. So this is something that if you realize this right now, does that mean that the rest of your life will be free from all suffering and distress? Wow. Yeah, it does. So how do we understand that? And why is it so difficult? It's one sentence. And we've read it a hundred, I don't know how many times you've heard it. But why is it so difficult to grasp it? And why does our minds just refuse to make sense of it? There's a quote by Suzuki Roshi. And it says, of course the bird we see and hear exists. It exists. But what I mean by that 
may not mean exactly what you mean. And there's where the trick lies. Usually when we talk about non-self or no self, we just negate the self. But I'm here, you're there, right? I have an apartment, you have an apartment, somebody's got to have that apartment. Uh, what about this? So we can't say, hey, there's no such thing as a self and leave it at that. We have to define what that self is. And we have to see what it is that we believe exists that doesn't and what the Buddha says does. And once we get that, we can start to pick the rest of this apart. So let's start with what does exist. What does the Buddha say exists? Well, the obvious answer is the five skandhas. Uh, that's the way he describes it. But what really is that? It's, he's saying that what exists is a body, material, and a mind. And if we decide, try to figure out what it is that we are, we're a body and a mind. But he's saying what this body and mind is, is really basically a convention, an agreement. There's nothing fixed there. There's nothing substantial there. It's just that we agree that my apartment is my apartment and your apartment is your apartment. It doesn't mean that it's a, that's, a, that's a truth. It's just an agreement until your lease runs out or you can't pay the rent and then it's no longer your apartment. We're just agreeing that it's going to be what we call for convenience and we don't get mixed up. So when I go home, uh, I'll take my bicycle and you'll take yours or you'll get home the way that you want. But even though when I say it's my bicycle, that's an agreement too, particularly in New York. I mean, the agreement on my bicycle is the chain that I lock it up with. That's the agreement that I have with New York City when it comes to being my bike. And I found out that not everybody honors that agreement. The chain doesn't mean what it means to them, what it means to me. Because I have gone out and found the chain there, but no bicycle. So it's an agreement. And what I'm saying when we say that this self is an agreement, let me ask you, is anybody, um, we, we think that this is us. Anybody that's, that's young that wants to volunteer, if I ask someone how old you are, would, would anybody answer that? Feel comfortable doing it? Doyen. Thank you. How old are you? You can lie. You can say 35. One to 39. Oh, really? Okay, four. okay. So if I ask you how old you are, and we all have an answer to that, you say 40. So what do you mean, or what do any of us mean when we say we're 40? Well, we don't mean that we're 40. We're talking, obviously, that our body is 40 years old, right? Because our thoughts are not 40 years old. Our feelings are not 40 years old. Our memories are not 40 years old, right? So we're talking about our body being 40 years old. And even with our body, is this the same body that we're talking about when we were three years old, when we were 15, or when we're 40? Is this the same body? No. no. <laughs> it's different. 
But we say, as a matter of convention and a matter of convenience, this is my body. It's 40 years old. So what we are, obviously, is not the body. So what do we mean by that? So if I say to you, what color are your eyes? Brown. OK, so we say brown. OK. Now, if when we say that, we're not saying I am brown. We're saying a part of my body is brown, right? So here we've switched the self from not being the body, right, which we've decided we're not, to being the possessor of the parts of the body, right? It's my eyes. It's my hand. It's my foot, right? So we now become the possessor of the body. Is the possessor something separate from the body? Can't be the same thing as the body, because what's possessed and the possessor can't be the same thing. It's just logically not possible. You have to have one or the other. So if we're the possessor of the body, where is this possessor? Where is this self? Is it outside the body someplace? Is it somewhere inside the body, maybe in the head, maybe like right in here is a little desk with a guy and he's, you know, or a girl, you know. Or is it everything inside the, where is this possessor? And what the Buddha is saying is when you look, this possessor that we think of and we feel so comfortable with that we never question does not exist and is also not or not findable. So we're looking at this right now. We're looking at two different ways that this imaginary self and this conceptual self that the Buddha says doesn't exist can take place, one as the body or as the owner or the possessor of the body. So if we're not the body, what else could we be? when we talk about ourself. And I'm not talking about what, um, about the process of something here. I'm not saying there's not anything here. I'm not saying there's a continuous process of perceiving, of sensing, of taking in information, of metabolizing uh, oxygen and hydrogen and this process of life. I'm not saying that that doesn't exist for one second. I'm saying that these other things, this possessor of the body, this thought that we are something of the body, doesn't exist. So if we're not necessarily the body or the possessor of the body, where else can we look for it? And a lot of times, we can look at it in what we feel, where we say, I am sad, or I am happy. So if we're saying, if we imagine that to be ourselves, then we're saying that we are our emotions and feelings. Or if we say, my feelings were hurt, then we become the owner or the possessor of these feelings. So again, we can be the experience of the feelings, of emotions and feelings, or we can be the one that possesses it, the I feel. But if we are the owner of any of these feelings, to own something is to control it, isn't it? I mean, that's the definition of owning something. I mean, if I own a car, I can say who can ride it and when and go in it and where it's going to be parked and so on. If I don't have any control over it, I can't say I'm the owner of it. So with our feelings, how much control do we have over them? 
do we really have over them? Do we can say that we really own these feelings? It gets confusing. And then the other thing that we can think that we are is how about our thoughts? I'm the one that thinks. Um, or are we the thought? I am a good person. I'm a good person. That's a thought. We identify with that. But is that something that we could really find the self in? Because that I am a good person could very well change into I'm not good enough. I need to try harder. I'm a disappointment. Or I'm, I'm the greatest whatever. You know, one of those. We won't get political. So we're not our body. We're not our thoughts. We're not our emotions. Where is this self that we cherish so much to be found? So, so far we've got like uh, three different types of selves in three different ways. There's another one that we have uh, where we can say that, well, I'm not any of those things because they're changing, but I am the one that experiences things. I'm the experiencer of life. I'm the observer. So everything is going on, but the self is I am what observes it. I am what's unchanging. I have what's always been here. I've been here from the moment I was born, and some people may think before that, and I will be here till the moment that I die, and some people believe that maybe they'll be there afterwards. This is the self that the Buddha is saying does not exist. This is the troublemaker. This is the rogue. This is, this is the demon that's causing us all of our suffering. This is where we spend so much effort trying to protect it, trying to, to, to become it, to become something. And Buddha is saying, that's not how the self exists. That self doesn't exist. And when you see that and you let go of that and you live life from just experience, just in the seeing, just in the being, just in the doing, without a third party to mediate all of that, that that's where the freedom lies from suffering and distress. There is no one that stands apart from experience. There is only experience. So, so far we have like nine different times of ways that we can look at selves, but then if we look even more and we get into different subcategories of self, the good son, um, the, the wife, the boss, the hard worker, the problem solver, the victim, the good person, the clever one, the one that's not good enough, the one has to try harder, it goes on endlessly. As soon as we get rid of one, another one pops up. This is the self that does not exist. This is the place we do not need to put our energy. This is unproductive. This is an illusion, or as the Buddha would say, a delusion. There's no one sitting in here behind the eyes. So each time you drop one identity or one ego, another one will pop up. You can't unthink it. You can't undo it because the job of the ego self is to create selves. And as soon as you get rid of one, it does its job and creates another one. And so which means you cannot use the ego thinking self 
to remove the self. It's not possible. That kind of wisdom or understanding will not work. That's why we've always been unsuccessful of it. You need a different type of wisdom or a different type of being, which is the prajna wisdom, which is not the dualistic, linguistic thinking that we normally have. It's that intuitive heart knowing. It's like a bicycle has 21 gears to go forward. You can pedal all you want and go different speeds, but you can't pedal that bicycle and go backwards because it just isn't built that way. And the mind isn't built that way. You have to go beyond it into a type of direct seeing. It's not that we're not smart enough or clever enough. It's just that we think in language. We always define something, what something is, by what it's not. What do I mean by that? We define uh, big by not being small. We define a river by not being an ocean. We define what's mine by it's not yours. There's nothing that we can think of. Uh, it's not an apple, it's a pear. With language or a rational mind, we have to split things up into yin and yang, into opposites. That's how we perceive with our thinking mind. To understand this, we have to perceive with the heart mind. It's a different way of seeing. All these conceptual modes of reality exist. All these separations and differentiations exist only in our minds. This self that we create exists only in our minds. These, these appearances and distinctions are purely arbitrary. The appearance is real, but they only exist by convention. It's merely a handshake agreement between people. Outside of our schemas, and that's the way that we categorize things and see things and, and organize our perception of the world, the model that we make of, of reality, because we never, we never can touch it directly. We only can just work with the electrical impulses that come in through our senses to our brain, and then we create a model out of that. And we break it down into these things, but that's not the way things really are. Without the mind to separate and to make these arbitrary, conventional agreements or distinctions, there is just one independent flow, a universe totally void of any distinctions whatsoever. It's just one thing. The experience of it is just one thing. It's an infinite circle that contains everything. It's only the mind that breaks it down into this and that. So the perfect knowing is prajnaparamita. It's knowing without knowledge. It's an intuitive, pure experience of what is and it's not mediated at all by conceptual thought. The realization of non-self will not change anything out there for you. It won't make the problems of the world go away, but it does offer a different perspective, one that is free from distress, contraction, and suffering and one that's full of joy 
and an innate sense of freedom. It offers to anyone that picks it up a lightness of being from which you can respond spontaneously to the needs of the world. And remember, it starts off with the bodhisattva of compassion. Not Manjushri, who's the bodhisattva of wisdom. It's compassion that feeds it. And why? For when the heart is freed by the realization of non-self, the wish for happiness is no longer contained by the boundary of me and mind. It expands effortlessly and infinitely to all beings like water being poured into water. At this point, there's no longer a doer. Just the Bodhisattva's compassion filled with doing of Prajna Paramita. Thank you.